Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to comprehend the magnitude of your grace in your name. Amen. It was a warm mid-eastern October evening. It was a time for celebration, a time to reflect on the accumulated accomplishments of yesteryear. Yesteryear's achievements certainly gave adequate pretext to pause and to party. But why the festivity now? Yesterday is gone and there's not too much to glory in the present. Is the regent blind? Is he indulging in sheer bravado with the enemy at the gate and the city under siege? The unconquered will be conquered. The indestructible is ready for destruction. The city that is idolized by the world and provides adequately for its inhabitants under prolonged siege is living on borrowed minutes with provisions for 20 years of siege and food to feed 10,000 mouths 10,000 times over. We are secure, but are we? Many sleep in peace while others revel the night away in thoughtless dance. The discos of Babylon dish up their cacophonous fare amidst the multicoloured flashing strobes. The taverns of the city rob men of their reason and the clubs with their poker machines make the wealthy poor and the poor poorer. Meanwhile, in the King's Festive Hall, a 53 by 17 by 20 metre banqueting chamber, or if you want to put it another way, a drinking den, the nobles of the kingdom lounged around and fed from sumptuously spread tables. The ladies of the court are there and the giddy liquid flowed and flowed and flowed. And the king, in an unquestionable act of defiance, ordered that the sacred vessels taken from the temple of the conquered be used as vessels for the night's revelry. The king wanted to show that no being, whether celestial or terrestrial, could raise a hand against the king of Babylon. The sacred cups from the temple of Jehovah are filled with the forbidden fluid and they toast the national deities. Belshazzar, the puppet king of Babylon, is acting out similar defiance to his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, who you may remember said in Daniel 3, in challenging the boys, what God shall deliver you out of my hand? Belshazzar is saying in effect, Where's the God of the Jews? These Jewish POWs, our gods are greater with arrogance on his lips and arrogance in his acts. 
The holy vessels from Jerusalem's temple are profaned. Jehovah God, where are you? If you study the book of Daniel, you'll be well aware that the book of Daniel is a contest of the gods. Who's the greatest? The God of the Jews or the multitude, the pantheon of the Babylonians? Chapter 1, the God of the Jews has the best menu. Chapter 2, the God of the Jews has the best kingdom. That's why God gave the dream. One of the reasons he gave the dream to Nebuchadnezzar to tell him it was time to change his allegiance from the kingdom of Babylon to the kingdom that would last forever where we can wing our tireless flight to worlds afar and we'll never grow old. Come on. An amen on that. We'll never grow old. Nebuchadnezzar, I want you to be in my kingdom. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven shut up, set up a kingdom that will never, never be destroyed. In chapter 3, the God of the Jews, he's the God of the elements. The Babylonians worshipped fire, but the Jews are saying our God is the God who made the fire and the wind and the rain and the water. God, where are you? A silent witness to all our activity heard everything and he said it's enough enough is enough Isaiah says of Babylon you trusted in your wickedness and have said no one sees me your wisdom and your knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself I am and there is none besides me no one sees me no one maybe no one but God does in the lights, the dim lights of the party night, the God of the Jews says, time is up. Enough is enough. The last day's play is over. The limits have been reached. And what God, small g, shall deliver you out of my hand, capital M, the sacred vessels from even the conquered power regarded as sacred by the conqueror. You remember the Philistines put the ark in their temple. Not so with this king, Belshazzar. He had to be drunk to do what he did. He's loaded with denial and not prepared to admit the terminus of his kingdom with the enemy at the gate. No one sees me. No one but God. He reveals his hand in a bloodless hand scribes a cryptic terse message of doom, a final SMS from the infant, a text from glory. You gloried in yourself. Enough is enough. Daniel chapter 5 and verse 5 says, suddenly, at that very moment, in that very hour, judgment came. Similar words used of the New Testament Babylon. In Revelation chapter 18, in three verses, it says of the end time Babylon, in one hour she is ruined. Belshazzar's hand stiffened and the sacred vessel fell to the floor. His face turned pale. The music stopped and silence reigned all but for the percussion solo of Belshazzar's smiting knees. Judgment came. It always comes. If it doesn't come now, it will come later. But hear me this morning, beloved. It only comes 
It only comes after mercy and grace have been spat at and despised. The wise men are called. They, their face, according to the text, their faces are blank. Belshazzar's. They couldn't read the writing on the wall. They couldn't tell Belshazzar what it meant. The men of genius and educational accomplishment are mute. And once again in the book of Daniel, we find that earthly wisdom is powerless to understand the wisdom of God. Nebuchadnezzar had the same trouble in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. And not until Daniel was called in could the meaning be given. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. You cannot, can you by searching find out God? So what's Belshazzar going to do? And the queen, the queen mother hears the commotion. This is Nebuchadnezzar's widow. She knows the history. She has the CVs of all the notables. This is not Belshazzar's mum because she's a teamer with Nabonidus. It's not Nabonidus's mother, Belshazzar's father, because she died in 457 BC. We conclude that it was probably Nebuchadnezzar's widow. And she comes in in verse 11 of chapter 5 and she says, There is a man in the kingdom with a mind in the midst of the mindless, a man whose mind is still working. He is a functioning frontal. He is an active conscience. Where are the Daniels? We are the Daniels. We are the ones who are called to read the writing on the wall. The wise men and women who understand God, he who belongs to God, Jesus says in John 8, hears what God says. And you may remember Jesus said to Pilate in John chapter 18 verse 37, that everyone on the side of truth understands and listens to me. Enter Daniel. Enter Daniel, not with trumpets blasting and drums rolling. The lady says, the lady says, inspiration says, in the quiet dignity of a servant of the Most High, Daniel enters. Verse 13 of Daniel 5, so Daniel was brought before the king. The king said, this is interesting, the king said, are you Daniel? One of those POWs that my grandfather brought from Judea? There's somewhat of an ethnic slur here. There's a contemptuous response. Really, it is clear from the text that Belshazzar didn't really want to have anything to do with Daniel. Are you Daniel? I think I've heard about you. Come on. Daniel was the prime minister with Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was the one who looked after the throne while Nebuchadnezzar was out having meditation therapy. And furthermore, Daniel could have said, Belshazzar, and I preserve the throne for you. What are you doing? Belshazzar, you haven't been listening. And he's somewhat disrespectful and rude. And offers Daniel a position. It's interesting that he offered him the third, the, the position of the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel had been the second. He wasn't offering anything significant to him. 
And furthermore, Daniel didn't need what he was offering because he had them all even before Belshazzar showed up. You notice, it's interesting Daniel's response to Belshazzar. You may remember when Daniel is called in in chapter 4 to give the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel is somewhat timid. He doesn't really want to tell Nebuchadnezzar what it's all about. And remember, he said, I wish that the meaning of the dream was to your enemies and not to you. But he doesn't respond the same way to Belshazzar. You and I would say he gave him a serve. He said, you have all the history. And you read from verse 18 through to verse 22, he talks about the history of, of, um, of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you notice in verse 20, but when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory, and he was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. And then he says in verse 22, you knew all this, you knew what happened to your grandfather, but you, his son, his grandson, you have, verse 22, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have had the goblets from the temple brought to you, and you and your nobles drank, you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver. Notice it doesn't have gold first, as Daniel edited, because gold's about ready to fall. So he put silver first. I don't know. But it doesn't say gold, silver. It says silver, gold, bronze, iron, wooden stone. These cannot see or hear, and you, and I love this part of the verse, you did did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Rosasi, you had the history. We have nothing to fear for the future except we forget the past, and you've forgotten the past, have you not, Belshazzar? You know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2? You know all about the dream and the image and the Babylon's going to fall? You know that God's going to set up a kingdom. You knew all this. You knew what happened in Daniel 3. You know what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar, how that he left the palace for the paddock. He gave up royal cuisine for donkey's fodder. You knew all about that. But you're doing a replay. As someone has said, the only thing we learn from history is we don't learn. We are masters at replay. You have all this history before you, Belshazzar. You know about the miraculous conversion and the restoration of your grandfather. And can I suggest to you this morning that I think he knew what Isaiah and Jeremiah said about the prophecies of Babylon. Isaiah's told of the night of pleasure, the anguish of the king. Isaiah chapter 21 and verse 4, he says, My heart falters, fear makes me tremble. The twilight I long for has become a horror to me. Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses, and he gives back the answer. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the images of gold lie shattered on the ground. And then Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51 tell how the city would be captured, the river would be dried up, and Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, would become as Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm quoting. A place forever cursed, never to be inhabited. And all of Isaiah 57 talks about the disaster that would come and the calamity that would befall the place. A catastrophe you cannot see will come. Let your stargazers, your astrologers, your your men of uh, accomplishment, 
your men who can see the future, let them tell. The monthly prognosticators, let them stand up and save you from these things. Behold, they shall be as stubble. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. None shall save thee. And the text says, the end of the chapter, Daniel chapter 5 and verse 30, it says, that very night was Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, slain. It's interesting that at 29, Belshazzar's dead. A pampered king who got the throne at 15, and 14 years later, he's gone. Yet his grandfather, God pursued him for 40 years. God is good. God is good all the time. And every chapter is an indication that God wasn't going to give up on Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, we read about the prophecies of Daniel. We read about the history but don't miss the point that God is after Nebuchadnezzar. Had to put him out on grass, seven years on grass, first hippie. That he might eventually look up and say, as he did at the end of Daniel 4, you are the king of kings and the lord of lords. And the lady who wrote to the church says he was thoroughly converted. You'll meet him in glory. God got him on board. Fly triple seven for the New Jerusalem. But at 29, Belshazzar's dead. What happened? This man was arrogant. This man despised grace. He spat in the face of God. God doesn't give up easily on anybody. But at 29, Belshazzar was dead. He was an ugly man. Some of the records of history indicate that he wasn't nice. The story is told that he was out hunting with his courtiers and one of his courtiers shot the game before he did. He shot him. On another occasion, someone made some very complimentary remarks about one of his courtiers in the palace. I hesitate to say this in public, but he had him emasculated in the company of the courtiers. That's the sort of guy he was. Grace ran out. He committed the unpardonable sin and he wanted to live independent of the one who gave him his life. Belshazzar had been given many opportunities for knowing and doing the will of God. The history of his grandfather stood out before him as vividly, and I'm quoting the lady, as vividly as the text on the wall. Grace had been despised and mercy had been rejected. O Belshazzar, I would have healed you, but you chose to remain infirmed. God opened every window he could. Thank you, Jesus. This is what he does for all of us. Hear me this morning. He opens every window to let the light in. But many of us, I'll edit that, some of us tint the windows to keep the light out. But God tries many ways to wake us up. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. He put a great storm and a great fish to wake up Jonah. Come on now. He allowed Peter to sink in Galilee in order to wake him up. He allowed disciples to be tossed on the waters of Galilee that they might cry out, carest thou not that we perish? I do care, you will not perish. He put Nebuchadnezzar on grass. Samson, Samson, he's in chapter 11 of Hebrews. How did he make it? Samson, eyes gouged out, read the story. 
grinding corn in a Philistine jail. That's horrible. An earthquake in Acts chapter 16 to wake up a jailer. He blinded Paul that he might see, blinded him on the Damascus Road and the effect of the Damascus Road illumination never departed from Paul because he carried with him in, in infirmity in his eyes because of that experience to remind him. As he said, I pray that I might be delivered of this infirmity, but God allowed it to remain to remind me that I'm not God. There is a God who's greater than any of us. God, God made a donkey talk. God made a donkey talk to try and wake up an apostate prophet. The one who said he'd seen a vision of the Almighty couldn't even see Jesus on the road. The donkey could, but the man on the donkey couldn't. And the donkey talked. The donkey said... Balaam said, the donkey said, Balaam said. That's an interesting conversation. Interesting to me that the donkey would talk. Interesting to me that Balaam would talk back and not think anything about it. God will do anything to wake us up. Thank you, Jesus. But God's restraining hand could no longer divert the impending peril. Probation. Probation was about to run out for king and kingdom. No one fell on their knees pleading forgiveness. The Holy Spirit had been grieved times without number. Repentance had gone and they'd committed the unpardonable sin because Belshazzar had not humbled himself. Verse 28, oh, sorry, verse 22 of Daniel 5. Same word that's used of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 37, but he humbled himself. Not a dream. Not a prophet or an angel, but Christ sent his other self, the Holy Spirit, to write a message, message on the banquet hall wall. The same hand, the same hand that ripped the curtain in the holy place when Jesus died on the cross is the hand that wrote many Many tickle you fasten. Wrote it over the wall that was plastered into molded illustrations of the heroic deeds of Babel of Belshazzar in hunting and war. And the text says it appeared near the lampstand. Some of us want to think because it's the lampstand, it's the lampstand that came out of the temple that's illuminating the message. That which Nebuchadnezzar, we're told, finally gained through untold suffering and humiliation, Belshazzar passed by with indifference. When will God write again? When will he say numbered and weighed and found wanting? The substitution, I'm told, by the lady who wrote to the church. The substitution of the false for the true is the last act in the drama. When this substitution becomes universal, God will reveal himself. The warfare against God's law, which began in heaven, will be continued till the end of time. And every man, woman, and child will be tested. Obedience is the, or disobedience is the question to be decided by the whole world. We'll have to choose between the laws of God and the laws of men. Then, she says, the end will come. 
substitution of the false for the true. You don't need me to tell you this morning the writing's on the wall, do you? The world will crash. Evil is on the loose. It's fast forward. It's express speed. The devil is turbocharged, supercharged with power. Humanity is hell-bent on destroying itself. We're told we've managed to kill off more people. This is horrible. We've managed to kill off more people in less time than any other era in the history of the world. And we say we're enlightened. Remember the Twin Towers? Remember the Twin Towers? Mm -hmm. Demolished by human hijackers in a terrifying display of human depravity. 3,000 people deprived of life in a brief segment of time. The writing is on the wall. Wake up, planet Earth. Have we forgotten Hitler? Buchenwald? Dachau, Auschwitz, Treblinka, Rwanda, Cambodia, the Balkans, and we could go on and end up in, a Syria, in Syria. Big government is powerless to remedy the dilemmas and the problems that are facing the globe. Someone has described big government like a termite-riddled log that's trying to go upstream with 2,000 termites on board. And each termite proclaiming that it has the ability to manoeuvre the log. It's beyond us. Pestilence is plaguing the planet. Babies infected with AIDS. Half the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. And 800 million people are malnourished. Nearly 200 million of these are children. 24,000 die of hunger every day. And so I can go on. All of us have the writing on the wall. May come in the bedroom, may come in the banqueting hall, may come in the kitchen. The message for all of us is weighed, numbered, found wanting or found not wanting. Are you a Daniel? Are you a Belshazzar? Are you one who's called on grace or are you one who has spurned grace? Choose Daniel or Belshazzar. Daniel, 85 years of age, a golden oldie, a prophet and a statesman. Belshazzar, indulgent, pampered, spoilt grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He had everything. At 29 years of age, he was, he'd, been, he'd been admitted to kingly power at 15, at 29 he's gone. One with sole solace, though an exile, the other agitated in soul or a king. One with conscience active, the other dampened and disturbed. Daniel lived correctly today and he could face tomorrow. Belshazzar couldn't face tomorrow because he had misused his todays. Daniel received high office and gold, which he didn't grasp after because he was in control. Belshazzar was in office, but out of control. He lost his office and returned to dust. Daniel. Listened to the word of God and he was not afraid of the words of men. Belshazzar defied the word of God and was afraid of the words and the actions of men. Belshazzar was shot down in full flight. And Daniel, don't miss it, 
Daniel lived on and he took a position of prominence in Babylon's conquering kingdom. God's people, thank you Jesus, survived the demise of kingdoms. They possess immortality mirrored here in Daniel's experience. He survives the fall of Babylon. The kingdom and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven will be given to you and to me, the people of the saints of the Most High. Daniel lived what he said to Belshazzar. He'd humbled himself before the divine one, before the king of kings. The message of righteousness by faith, if you've forgotten, is the message of laying the glory of man in the dust. Daniel was not awed or dazzled by the human because he'd bowed before the divine. He knew the one in the furnace. He knew the one who gave lockjaw to the lions. He knew the Holy Spirit that wrote on the wall because he was his daily power. And hear me, beloved, hear me. He was robed in that beautiful designer label garment made by the chief designer that is flawless, spotless, faultless and stainless. It's always fashionable and you'll always look good, Adrian, if you've got the robe on that your maker gives you that comes from the fashion center of the universe and it's tailor-made for you. Thank you, Jesus. Is an amen in the house? Put on the robe. The robe that's woven in the loom of heaven that has in it, that has in it not one thread of human devising. Tell the perfectionist that. The lady, the lady who wrote to the church says to us, put on the robe of Jesus' righteousness. And there is before the church, before the church, the dawn of a brilliant and a glorious day. The music. You didn't need me to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you. You didn't come here necessarily to hear something new. You came here to see whether I believe what you believe. And I do. The music ceases for everything earthly. It's the last party, the last oath, the last drug dose, the last dance, the last cocktail, the last nicotine puff, the last embrace, the last goodbye, and the last breath. But for those who continue to live against the backdrop of eternity, there is continuation. And even if death should take us, even if death should take us into its possession, it is only an interlude. It's only a brief diversion. It's only an afternoon siesta. HMS Richard said, if you hear I've died... Don't believe it. I'm just having a little afternoon nap waiting for Jesus to come. And as Sister Coombe says, I don't mind if I go the underground underground route to glory. I quote you, Sister. Daniel says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life. And those who, like Daniel, count their days and make their days count, who read the writing on the wall, us and who are discerners of the times, they will shine like Daniel. Thank you, Jesus. They will shine like Daniel, like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness will shine like stars forever and ever. Hmm. Dust to stars or stars to dust, you choose. As for you, memorial, 
go your way until the end. You will rest, maybe. And then, at the end of days, I'm quoting from the last verse in Daniel, then at the end of days you will arise and receive your allotted inheritance. Father, thank you for your son, our elder brother. And don't allow any of us, please, Father, to keep the doors shut. We're well aware that you're about ready to write on the banqueting chambers of this earth, on the walls, numbered, found wanting. But, Father, please, over us, write found and not wanting. Thank you, Jesus, that you've made every provision that we might look good in the eyes of the Father because of the robe that you give us. Keep the robe on us, Father. And may day by day we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Shepherd us, Father. Lead us beside still waters into green pastures. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thank you that you are with us, your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our head with oil and our cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will chase us, will pursue us, will follow us all the days of our lives and ultimately we can be in your presence forevermore. Father, hasten that day and keep us faithful, please. Keep us looking in Jesus' name. Amen.